Fredology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Welcome to this week's episode. I first just want to say that we survived. You survived Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And let's be honest, it was really Black Friday week last week and Cyber Monday. And I am guessing that a lot of you are listening to this episode while you are manually reviewing orders or looking through the data of the last week or two weeks to determine if you need to make any tweaks to your model or your rules engines. So I am grateful that you're taking a little time out. Well, probably not. You're probably multitasking. Let's be honest here. I'm a fraud fighter too, and I know that that's what we all have to do. But I'm really grateful that you take time to listen to this podcast, and I am really excited. I just know that everyone's going to learn at least something today. So before excitedly introducing my guest for this week, I wanted to just give a tiny bit of a background onto why I thought it was so important to have him on. I'm lucky to have so many of you and just in general e-commerce fraud fighters reach out to me when they don't know the answer. It's something that I am very proud of and grateful for and never try to take for granted ever. By being in that position, I have definitely noticed a lot of patterns and I've I've learned a lot. And kind of similar to fraud fighting, really, right? We start to look at patterns and go, hmm, I think this is probably indicative of something bigger. And that's kind of what's happened over the last probably six to eight weeks. And it really on two big things, but really what it comes down to is merchants reaching out to me around, hey, we didn't catch this. We we should have caught this. We usually catch this. We didn't catch this. What's going on? And really, those can be divided into two camps. One is account takeover. The other is reshipping fraud or just in general of payment fraud for physical goods retailers. And so as you'd imagine, the holiday season, that is something that is not good when you're missing things. Just to give kind of a Another setback for anyone who is not an e-commerce fraud fighter, a lot of fraud industries are focused on investigations after the fact, after the crime is committed, after the money has been stolen. It's looking at indicators of, to determine what happened. And for e-commerce fraud, because of the liability rules, because online merchants are on the hook for the transaction amount. It really has to do with fraud prevention and being able to look at different identifiers and 
think about you know the things that you fill out on an online order, there's not a ton, but looking at the combination as well as other things that can be gleaned through technology to determine is this who they say they are, to determine intent before the crime is actually committed. And we rely, especially over the last decade or decade and a half, we rely on outside technology to help with that because it's just not something that companies can build internally while they're also working on their sales strategy and their marketing strategy and everything else. And so I definitely want to make sure that I'm highlighting the role that uh, technology has in all of this as well. And uh, it's been really good, but sometimes a little delayed because, you know, we are oftentimes trying to react to what fraudsters are putting in place. So for account takeover in general, when you're looking at the indicators, something that's been very helpful over the last few years, probably in the last five or six years is device ID and device fingerprinting and IP geolocation. And really what that means is you're able to know more about the actual device. So we have other technology or other things that can help us know about the person. But for account takeovers, it's been really instrumental in knowing, okay, we see that this person logs in from their iPhone on this IP address, which is probably their home address every single time they log into their account with us. And now this one time they're logging in from, and this is going to be an extreme easy example just for the sake of it. I know that there are a lot of other edge cases, uh, but just for the sake of being explanative, if you then see that person logging in from a PC with an IP in Russia, for example, or they're logging in from a device that looks like an iPhone, but they're probably using an emulator. But you can tell that the browser language is in Russian when the other device has always been in English. That can be an indicator of account takeover. And so those are things that are very helpful for preventing fraud. One of the reasons why I'm being so candid about this, I mean, I'm still being pretty general and there are certain things I'm not sharing on this public format, is because fraudsters know all of this. They're reading the same white papers that we are or that we should be. They are, you know, studying your systems. And, you know, honestly, I think we've been quite lucky over the last few years that technology has been able to detect so much account takeover. But that means that there have been fraudsters that have been trying to figure out, well, how do we get around this? How do we do this differently so that we are not getting all of our orders canceled or a big majority of them? And similarly, for retailers that have physical goods, one very important piece of information, as is device and everything else, but one piece of information that's very helpful is the shipping address. And as merchants have been cracking down on freight forwarders that are shipping outside of the country as they've been cracking down and and as there are is more technology to determine address and you know who lives there and if they're related and you know phone number registration and all of that it's been harder and harder for cyber criminals and and criminal organizations to get those products to them especially if they're overseas and so what's ended up happening is fraud prevention companies or teams really, we don't have a lot of insight into what, how the data is obtained or what is really happening up until it gets onto our system. So we're having to kind of guess based off of what you're seeing internally. And a lot of transactions have not been detected by these systems that generally would usually detect it. And so what ends up happening is higher chargebacks for payment fraud, as well as customer contacts into the contact center, uh, whether that's via chat, phone, email, et cetera, 
saying my account was hacked or saying, you know, I had this money in my account and now I don't. What's going on? And so those are two indicators that account takeovers aren't being identified as much. And similarly with physical goods retailers, and, and mind you, some of these physical good retailers could also be having account takeover, but they're starting to notice our fraud detection system didn't catch these, but they're turning into chargebacks. And the only indicator is that the email address was, you know, new to the network recently. And that, you know, some merchants use the term zero day email to explain that, that in hindsight, when they're kind of doing their postmortem on a chargeback or really reverse engineering it to determine, was it fraud? Was it not fraud? They're seeing that the only possible indicator of risk could have been the email was new, but everything else looked fine to their system. So it passed it. So these two things are happening. And so I've started to get a lot of questions around that and having conversations around those. And, and another, I think, interesting thing to note is the people that this is coming from or the companies really that it's coming from, they're the top big e-commerce companies in the world. I mean, they're the biggest names. They're the ones who probably have more resources than the rest of the merchants. They have, you know, the best systems that money can buy, or they have internal technology that has bridged the gap, or they also usually have top-notch people who have been in fraud prevention for a long time. They're the ones who are reaching out. And it's not that I haven't known these guys forever, that they're not my friends, or, you know, that I haven't helped them before. But Usually, if new technology is happening on the fraud side, these guys are going to be the first ones to catch it. So the fact that they're the ones reaching out first and very quickly followed by maybe large, medium to large merchants as well that are having these issues, I started to really notice this pattern of, oh, okay, so in this endless cat and mouse game, I can never remember if we're the cats or we're the mice, but I believe we're the cats. The mice have been outsmarted or have outsmarted us this time. They know where the the mouse traps are. And so what's going on? And like similarly to earlier this year when retailers were reaching out to me about refund fraud or just seeing, you know, a lot of claims of did not receive, I, you know, met Chase Park around the same time and he really helped fill in the gaps as to what was happening on the criminal side. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend that you do so after this one. I had something very similar happen to me over the last like six to eight weeks as well. And that is that I have started working with a new client on the provider side, and that is called Q6 Cyber. And I wanted to give full disclosure that Ellie Dominance, my guest for today's interview, is a client of mine. One of the you know, things that they've asked me to help them with is entering the e-commerce market. I and mean, they already have several e-commerce clients, but they really are a household name on the banking side, but not on the e-commerce side. And one of my big prerequisites for working with a solution provider is they have a solution that solves problems that merchants don't really have easy access to. It's something that's really going to solve a problem. I only want to provide value to the merchant side. That is always my number one. And so that's a huge part of it. If I'm going to help them speak the language and understand merchants and understand what their pain points are and how to help them, I want to know that they really can help. And so, you know, we started having these conversations and I started to realize that what he was sharing with me was really the reasons behind the questions I was getting from all of these merchants. It was the reasons behind it because I think 
too often things are fractured and we either are looking at our internal data mixed with a little bit of external data, but it's more on the verification side to predict fraud without ever knowing what happened ahead of time. And what Q6 does is it provides e-crime intelligence, as they call it. It's much more than dark web monitoring, and I'll let him explain it because he does such a better job at it than I do. But they really provide that other piece of the puzzle or the other side of the fence or the other side of the coin, however you want to describe it, in explaining what the fraudsters are actually doing. And this has been really enlightening to me. And in every merchant conversation that I've had since learning some of this from Ellie and his team, it's really helped connect the dots for the merchants that I've been able to talk to as well. So that's really why I wanted to have Ellie on this podcast, especially right now, knowing that you're you know buried in holiday orders, but this is going to help you understand what to look for a little bit more. And I think just awareness is the very first step. Granted, they do have great intel on the specifics as far as what is being used against your company, the specific accounts that have been compromised or the specific reshipping addresses that they're going to, but they also get to see the trends and the patterns on the cyber criminal side. So I think between the two of us, we've really helped not solve this problem because we have a ways to go. And I do believe that the technology that you know, may not be able to detect it as well right now is going to improve. I mean, that's just what's going to happen. But in the interim, it's really important to understand what is happening and what is being said about your company, as well as what resources the fraudsters have. And I think you'll be surprised. So with all of that, I am really excited to introduce my interview with Ellie. I'm actually recording this part after we interviewed. So I have a sneak peek of what you're going to learn. But I really would also love to ask that you share with me what you've learned or what's been most helpful to you. That will really help me identify what pieces I can provide more content for you, either on my LinkedIn or on future podcast episodes. I recently hosted our first Fraud Fighter Happy Hour, which was so fun. And both of these topics came up on that from very large companies. And we'll be having another one in January. I'll share those dates soon. It is only merchant only, and I'm sorry for that, but I'll talk more about that on next episode. But these are things that are just really top of mind. And I am looking forward to knowing what you learn so I can provide even more details on that, either from Ellie or another great expert in our field. So with that, I hope you enjoy and I can't wait to hear what you've learned. Well, I'm really excited to introduce my listeners to my next guest. Ellie Dominance is the CEO of Q6 Cyber and someone I've been able to get to know over the last few months and really admire for the company that he's built and just the amount of knowledge he and his team have. So Ellie, thank you so much for joining me on the Fraudology Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I really like one of the first times we talked, I was like, I have to get him on my podcast. Uh, So I'm happy you're here. So really to start getting to know you first, I'd love for you to share a little bit of your own background and how it led to you founding Q6 Cyber. About six years ago, I was part of a team that co-founded a cybersecurity company, which was uh, focused on third-party risk. And as part of launching that company, I noticed that there were a number of intelligence firms specifically around cyber threat intelligence 
that we're helping various companies to become more proactive about identifying threats and risks and then mitigating them. However, I felt that there were a couple of gaps. One, it didn't seem like there was that same model and the same type of company focused on fraud intelligence. Uh, And two, I felt that even the existing providers, a lot of their intelligence was kind of generic. It just wasn't specific enough and actionable enough for companies to do something with and prevent fraud or cybercrime or other types of electronic crimes. So that kind of uh, got me curious. And as I spent more and more time studying that space, I saw a huge opportunity and that led to the creation of Q6. I actually didn't know that full background story, so I appreciate that. But I love how curiosity can lead to great solutions. So on that, what service does Q6 provide to your clients? And can you share the categories of businesses that you support? Sure. We generally serve clients in financial institutions, retail and e-commerce, healthcare, technology, and a few other sectors. But those are the areas where I think we have the greatest concentration of clients. Our clients tend to be enterprise firms. And really what we try to do at a very high level is, is help these organizations become more proactive. So instead of you know, trying to detect fraud in real time and prevent it, which is good, but obviously not perfect and can create some friction with the actual customer, the idea was how can we become more proactive? How can we see the trends coming? How can we see guys? And I like to give people a, a real world a physical analogy. If you think about defending a perimeter, by the way, this led to the name key six, but if you think about defending a perimeter, a traditional approach would have been you surround that perimeter with a fence with you know with whatever sensors you want and if somebody's approaching you can identify and and repel an attack or prevent them from gaining access however if you wanted to be much more proactive imagine you put cameras and sensors and other devices 2 miles outside the perimeter at that point you see any attacker approaching and you can be much more prepared so that was the idea By the way, that's Q6. The Q refers to the quadrant, kind of the four sides of the perimeter. And the six is going to additional dimensions and really trying to identify threats well before they're coming around the perimeter. So anyway, that was the idea. And what we ended up building is the ability to track and monitor and identify fraudsters and cyber criminals engaging in what we call the digital underground, which is not just the dark web and the deep web, but other parts of the internet that are just not accessible to most people. They're hiding behind password-protected sites. They're hiding in in infrastructure that is not easily identifiable or visible. But finding those areas of activity and then monitoring the activity, so finding out who are these bad guys targeting, what are the tools and tactics they're using, and then if they already have been able to compromise some sort of data or some kind of access, how can you identify that and then use that to be much more proactive? So with all that intel, our clients are able to reduce fraud, reduce uh, cyber threats, data breaches, other types of electronic crimes. And it's all about us being able to monitor and identify these bad guys, figure out what they're doing, and have that information relayed before they approach the perimeter to go back to my analogy. Now I'm realizing, did I do my homework as far as... (laughs) Well, and I mean, but you know that what I really cared about a lot was, you know, what you were providing and, and how it was different than other people, because... I do get approached to work with, you know, to partner with several vendor companies. And I I am very strategic in knowing that I only want to work with companies that I know will provide something different and unique to help merchants and the problems they're having today and and now. And you checked all of those boxes. I guess I didn't do as much homework on on the name and the history, but (laughs) definitely did a lot of homework on the other parts. 
you know, so speaking of that, I think one of the very first questions I asked you when we had our first call was, how are you different from what we refer to as dark web monitoring? You know, there are a lot of companies, maybe not a lot, but there are several companies out there that provide, you know, kind of the public information that's on dark webs or tell merchants what, you know, provide them with lots of lists of email addresses that may be compromised. You know, I think you're probably most similar to something like that if we're trying to put you in a box, but how are you different from that? It's a great question. So let me try to define dark web monitoring for folks who may not be as familiar with it. In most cases, when people say they're monitoring the dark web, they're referring to a collection of forums, marketplaces that are on the dark web where bad guys, fraudsters, or cyber criminals buy and sell information or trade data, et cetera. Five years ago, that was a very great set of sources to monitor for intelligence because the bad guys were not as careful about openly sharing information. Now, fast forward to today where law enforcement and companies like cars have spent time identifying those communities and building ways of monitoring that activity bad guys understand that. So they've moved away from the dark web, if you will, to other sources. So, you know, that's one important distinction. You know, the dark web is really, I think, overused. It's a buzzword. Mm -hmm. The traditional dark web is just not as meaningful from an intelligence perspective. To address that part, really, we, we don't consider ourselves a dark web monitoring business because there's not a lot of value in that. We've gone well beyond the dark web to look at infrastructure like malware, servers, and, and panels other types of technical infrastructure that is being used by a lot of these bad guys to communicate, to store information, to sell services or digital goods to each other. So that goes well beyond the dark web. So that, that I think, is is the first distinction. You brought up a great example with, you know, email credentials are really credential pairs that are out there. You can find literally, you know, hundreds of millions, probably billions of sets of credentials that are available, both in the clear web and on the dark web. The problem is they're just not that useful. You know, finding credential pairs is one thing, but then if you put yourself in the shoes of a bad guy to actually use them to log into someone's account is not very easy. And the reason is you have so much volume in order to, you know, efficiently go through all that and try to to log into some someone's bank account or merchant account or e-commerce account, you have to run what's called a credential stuffing attack where you push hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions of those credentials through those websites and see which of them work. Well, most companies have figured out a way of detecting that and preventing that. So the point is that even if you can find a lot of information, it's just not very actionable. And the whole point of this company is to go well beyond the dark web and that kind of information and find real intelligence that's actionable and useful. So we're much more thoughtful and focused in what we go after. And when we do find it, which happens every day, it tends to be much more actionable and much more relevant. As someone who has gotten to see behind the curtain quite a bit, I can 100% agree with that. And that's exactly what I wanted to have you on here was really to kind of talk about some of the themes that you're seeing through that. As you were sharing that history, it was interesting to me because I was thinking almost like on a timeline of, you know, prior to the Alpha Bay uh, yeah. shutdown, right? And just how much of a free sharing market it was yeah. on the dark web in quotation marks. And then after that, how they really scattered and some set up their own marketplaces on, you know, deep web, dark web. Others have gone to private messaging sites, you know, behind passwords where you only know they exist if you get an invite, you know, lots of different other places. And so it's really important to keep up with that, as well as when you're talking about credential stuffing, I distinctly remember a very large online gaming site that 
was really struggling with credential stuffing about three, four years ago. And then they were able to just like what you said, you know, be able to look by the volume. Okay. This IP or this device has tried 47 different mm-hmm. passwords or emails or whatever it is. Clearly they're trying to, you know, launch an attack. So it's a continual cat and mouse game. And it's one that we all love and hate at the same time, I think, but it is also something that is motivating. And that is definitely something that set you guys apart. And I think also in your perimeter example, I was thinking of how, you know, putting up cameras or sensors right around your building is very similar to the preventative fraud prevention technology that we have in e-commerce, as well as in banking and merchant processing and fintech. And those are really helpful. They help you detect signals and determine, okay, is this person good or bad and based on behavior and outliers and machine learning? And we've gotten incredibly good since I first started 15 years ago, where it was just, there was one company that offered that and it was very rules-based and very static and easy Mm -hmm. to figure out. But as the criminals get more and more good at emulating not just good customers, but their victims themselves, that's where it becomes extremely handy to be receiving lists of, you know, compromised credentials or, you know, that information of these specific things are out there for your company, not just out there in general. So that is a big reason why I've made the decision to, you know, work with you in entering or not really entering, you're in it already, but really working with more e-commerce companies because there just is so much data out there. And I can imagine from your perspective, I know for me, whenever I learn about Intel that's out there for merchants, I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel guilty having this and not giving it to them. So I know that that's a big part of, you know, why we're working together so that I can reach out to the people I know, my friends and say, hey, oh my gosh, this is out there. I've just been so impressed with the amount of information you've provided, you know, in data analysis, et cetera. So with all that, one of the ways that I've gotten to work with you so far is I recently had the privilege of co-authoring a white paper with Q6 on the reshipping mule underground that's plaguing online retailers with physical goods. And especially appreciate the wealth of knowledge that you all shared in this content. I think over the years, some people have gotten kind of frustrated with white papers because they're just seen as a marketing ploy. But I really think that you can tell a lot about a prospective partner based off of what they provide for free in white papers and you guys provided a lot. So I'm going to put the link to that in the show notes and highly recommend everyone read it. But I think it'd be really helpful for retailers to understand that reshipping is growing faster than ever at at scale. Can you talk a little bit about what your team has seen around this method of e-commerce fraud and just how much it's grown recently? Yeah. First, I have to say it was a lot of fun working with you on, on the paper. So uh, Likewise. Yes, we, we I'm should in. Do it again. <laughs> the, uh, the reshipping fraud, it's always been a problem. What we've seen over the last few months, really since COVID began, are two really important drivers of a significant increase. One, COVID itself. And Carice, you and I have talked about this a few times. You know, the traditional anti-fraud models, both in e-commerce and financial services, are struggling to keep up with this new normal where transactions are very different or the patterns are just not what they used to be. So, for example, you used to, you know, work in an office and you had a pattern and a routine and your purchases look one way. 
Well, now that you're stuck at home and you're buying very different types of products online, models take some time to adjust and incorporate all that data. So number one, fraud models will take some time to adapt to the new environment that we're in. And that created an opportunity, which the bad guys recognize to ramp up e-commerce fraud and particularly reshipping fraud. That's number one. Number two, what we've seen is that a lot of the more sophisticated cyber criminal gangs, and these are gangs that make millions of dollars a month by conducting fraud and other types of financial crimes, they look at reshipping and they just see a huge opportunity. And so when they go into that, that generates you know both supply and demand for reshipping fraud. And that's created a, a spike as well. Now, the final thing that we've seen as it relates to COVID supporting all this, and this is every time you have an, an economic recession or a significant you know, pullback in economic activity of people who lose jobs and they're financially squeezed and they participate in schemes or scams that, you know, maybe otherwise they know better that they shouldn't participate in that. So that helped fuel the reshipping situation. So those are some of the drivers that we've seen for a significant increase. But, you know, all the merchants that we speak with, financial institutions who issue the payment cards, everybody's talking about an increase in reshipping fraud. And it's just become more institutionalized, if I may say, meaning as it's big criminal gangs, organized crime, they step into it, you're seeing better tools, greater sophistication, you know, they really study the algorithms and and the tools that the merchants are using to detect this kind of activity. So they're studying it, they understand how they get around it. And that's really the biggest change that we've seen. And so, you know, when we look at some of the data that we have, again, by monitoring some of these bad guys directly, we've seen a significant spike targeting lots of e-commerce merchants from the big guys and kind of general you know, e-commerce merchants, all the way down to mid-sized merchants and those that are very, you know, specific in one or a few categories, anything from furniture to electronics. So I think it's been bad news for merchants when it re- as it relates to reshipping fraud. And I think we, as an industry, we have to do a better job of identifying it and figuring out what can be done to prevent or reduce reshipping fraud. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you're absolutely right. Reshipping fraud's been around for so long. I mean, even since I was a merchant and that was over 10 years ago. But I think for the longest time, maybe it was just in my head, I was thinking it was kind of these small organizations or just, you know, one guy that would recruit someone via romance scam or work from home scam and kind of have maybe a small group. But in the last several months, it's been really interesting to me and your timing of reaching out was unique too, because, you know, reaching out about this white paper, I had started to hear kind of from the other side of the coin And the thing about, you know, you and I've had these conversations many times is that merchants are trying to put together the puzzle pieces and determine what's happening just with little information they have either prior to the purchase or once they receive the chargeback. And there have been a lot of mid-sized enterprise level merchants recently who they may not understand that it's reshipping, but they understand that, huh, our systems are not catching this. Like our system passed it and said it was fine because it's a residential area. And I would add a couple other contributing factors too, due to COVID. One big one is that more people are shopping online than ever before. There are a lot of people who have never shopped online before that are in a demographic that usually you wouldn't see online, like over 60s or in rural America. Well, now they can't leave their homes or you know they don't want to leave their homes. And so they're ordering online. So it looks very similar, right? When you're looking at an order, it can either be someone who has never really purchased online. So their email address hasn't been seen before and their other activity, you know, they haven't been linked to the address and everything else looks fine, but they're, you know, shipping to a, a residential area in a relatively low risk, you know, neighborhood or 
metropolitan area. So not really something that companies are like considering high risk, but it looks almost identical to orders where organized crime is placing it on behalf of someone whose U.S. residential address they're now Mm -hmm. able to use. And maybe they're paying that mule and maybe they aren't. I love to use the word fun because I had a lot of fun working on this too. And I've had fun diving into so much with you guys over the last couple of months because I really am getting to see like the other side of the fence and the things that we've never really been able to see before. Not just the trends, but also obviously specific addresses and and emails and names, et cetera, that are being used. And I've also been able to introduce a few e-commerce merchants to you that, or introduce them to your data that are like, oh my gosh, this is the missing puzzle piece. So that's been really exciting. But something that I actually can appreciate about these guys, because you're absolutely right, it can be very overwhelming and discouraging that this is growing so fast, but just how organized they are. They really are running it like a business. And, and that does mean that there's a paper trail. And so kind of just from like a process standpoint, what are kind of the, the main steps that these criminal organizations, and I think, you know, most of them are, you can assume are probably out of Eastern Europe, some in North Africa, you know, what are you seeing them do as far as like, are they hiring the mules themselves? Are they, you know, hiring it out? Like just kind of to help. I can envision a lot of retailers listening to this right now as they're looking at orders. So this can be really helpful for them like at the moment, because I hear from a lot of them that listen to this podcast while they're working. (laughs) Yeah. So let's define for a second when, or at least when I talk about mules, we're talking about somebody who's, you know, receiving a package and then going to reship it to another address. So you hit on a key piece of of the operation. Mule recruitment is extraordinarily important for anybody running reshipping fraud at scale because mules have a shelf life. It might be a few weeks, it might be a few months, you know, it depends on how quickly there is a complaint and a chargeback. So, but, but and they're added to the day, negative list on yeah, the fraud prevention. There, there is yep. a shelf life for any given mule. So if you yeah. want to run this at scale, you need to be able to actively and regularly recruit mules. By the way, we also, we're very active with financial institutions and there, the shelf life for a mule is significantly shorter. So when you're recruiting financial mules, your operation needs to be you know, even more robust and you have to be recruiting literally you know, dozens to hundreds of people per day to keep the machine going. But anyway, you need to have effective mule recruitment. Now, we kind of touched on it in the paper we wrote. We didn't get into it in a lot of depth, but there are certain criminal organizations that just focus on mule recruitment. And then they basically sell or outsource those mules to other criminal organizations who commit the fraud. And then you have those that, that let's say, they're vertically integrated. So they, you know, they do everything A to Z. But they have different departments people, within their organization. Yeah, I mean, these are like real businesses. Yeah. So the, you know, mule recruitment is a big piece of it. You have winning mules, they have unwitting mules. But either way, the key is you need to be able to get individuals, in some cases, even small businesses, who are going to partake in the scheme. They'll be willing to accept packages and reship them. You need to be able to compensate them. You know, a lot of people have asked us, do they get paid? Yeah, they do. In most cases, they get paid. Some cases, it's a scam. But the organized criminals pay these mules because they want to keep them for as long as possible. So recruiting these mules and maintaining them is a huge part of it. Now, second piece you need to understand is you need to know what kind of merchandise you can easily resell. So you need to have downstream demand. Are you going to be selling this online? Do you have your own shop? where you're selling stolen goods? Are you selling it to legitimate merchants that don't know? Are you selling it on the gray market? Are you selling it on tour websites? Where are you selling it? You need to have you know, real distribution. So you got to get yeah. all this merchandise and then resell it. So that's a big piece of it. 
And then finally, so let's say you've got the mules, so you can get stuff, you know, if you can steal it. You've got the downstream demand. Now the question is, where are you going to find the merchandise? Are you going to go after big name, you know, e-commerce merchants and just hope to hide, you know, in all the noise and the numbers? Are you going to go to mid-sized merchants? And that's where every fraudster or criminal group is going to have its own specialization. We've seen guys that will go after the biggest merchants and they spend a lot of time studying their systems and kind of trial and error until they figure out, okay, this is how we can get transactions through. And the value in that is once you figure it out, you could run a lot of volume. You've got other criminal organizations that might be less interested or less sophisticated. And they'll say, we'll go after mid-sized merchants because it'll be easier, but we'll burn out more quickly. So maybe it'll take three weeks or three months uh, and then you know it, it'll end, but maybe that velocity is a little bit more attractive to them. So those are really the key components. The mule recruitment on the one side, you need the downstream demand. And then there's a middle piece of how do you actually purchase these goods? Obviously, having compromised payment cards or having access to the accounts on these e-commerce merchants that you can access if you can take over someone's account and use it to buy products from their own account, that's obviously a requirement. But frankly, that's the easiest piece. It's very easy to get that in the underground, very easy to buy that if you need that. So that's a critical part, but again, probably the easiest piece. Yeah. And I think you know, other things I took away just are, you know, they're not as concerned about who the merchant is as the items that they can get. And to your point, how resellable they are. And I think, you know, a lot of merchants know this already, but a lot of times it's the most popular items with your good customers that are the most popular items with the bad customers, because in a way you're kind of competing for the same customers. They're offering your items at a very reduced discount. And by shipping them to addresses that are not already in your system or they aren't in the systems that you use, they're able to you know get around them for a little while. And then it is kind of turn and burn. And there was a story I heard from a merchant recently that they actually took time to like call this local sheriff in this small town to go knock on the door of this guy that had received like $3,000 in pretty nice power equipment and tools. And based on the conversation and everything, we're pretty sure that the guy was witting as far as like he knew that he was doing something because he was getting paid for it, but he didn't really know a lot. But a lot of times they'll be coached and just say, it's for personal use. It's for personal use. Well, the problem with doing that with a small town is that the sheriff knew that this guy has a very small fixed income and they know he kind of skirts right up the line of the law. And so they're like, well, Bob, how the heck are you able to afford these $3,000 in tools? And, oh, I see you have an iPad too, and this and that. And Mm -hmm. he just, you know, well, I mean, I don't know. You know, it's that kind of thing. And the merchant was able to really, you know, they they really were kind of a dog with bone and, and at least got their merchandise back. And they told me the names of the other merchants that were hit. And I was like, those ones just don't, it's not that they don't care. They just don't have the time because to your point that, you know, some companies are hit more than others. I think it's just important for merchants to know too, that you're not always going to know that this fraud is reshipping. It doesn't scream in big letters Mm -hmm. like account takeover or other types of fraud. But if you are receiving chargebacks for things that your fraud system or that you didn't think looked that bad, but it was for a new customer, Mm -hmm. chances are it's reshipping, especially on, you know, power equipment, electronics, coffee makers always seem to be big, Mm -hmm. just, you know, cameras and tablets and all the things that, you know, are on everyone's Christmas list or or holiday list. So it does definitely muddy the waters, especially this time of year. I often say that fighting fraud in the holidays just means a much bigger haystack and a lot more needles. (laughs) Sometimes it's more like finding the, you know, 
the gold needles in a stack of, you know, yeah. like very similar colored needles. So that's why I, you know, have been really excited by the information you guys can provide. So only because I want to switch topics a little bit to something that I know that a lot of other merchants are dealing with. And I actually just got a message about this like five minutes before we were about to record, maybe 10 from a large merchant that are having this issue too. It seems like, I mean, all fraud is going up, but one thing that companies are really finding right now is account takeover, that they're having a really hard time identifying or understanding what's happening. So I've been blown away by the access to compromised account credentials that your team has access to often long before the account appears to be compromised on the merchant's end. And like I said, we've been able to kind of go through this practice with a couple of merchants I know being like, hey, remember you said that you're having this problem? I think I have the other piece. And, you know, making the introduction, I've been able to see this in action and just how valuable it's been for them to be able to diagnose how they're getting in, as well as to pinpoint those accounts so that, you know, if if slash when is more like it, when that account becomes compromised, they already have a flag that more than likely that account's compromised so that they can protect it ahead of time. It's just such good information. Can you share the most growing trend for how compromised credentials are being harvested by criminal organizations and what you're seeing on your end? Because I think this will be fascinating to a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, we touched on it a bit earlier. So let's distinguish between what I call credential stuffing attacks versus malware. So credential stuffing attack, let's use an example. Company X gets hacked. Let's just make up a social media company gets hacked and 100 million customer accounts get compromised. So that means usernames, emails, passwords to those social media accounts are exposed and, and then distributed in the underground to lots of cyber criminals and fraudsters. And the idea is if they have those credentials, they could try to log into a merchant or multiple merchants and access someone's account and try to buy something on that account. As we briefly touched on earlier, that is just not very effective anymore because if you've got those 100 million accounts or credential pairs, you can't sit one by one and try to log into 12 different merchants. You're going to have to use a tool, a simple technology tool that'll take all those and run them against multiple merchants. The problem is for you is that the merchants are going to see a lot of volume. They're going to see a lot of attempts coming from similar IP addresses. So they're going to detect traffic. So, you know, that's a traditional credential stuffing attack. Yes, you will find a lot of credential pairs that might be valid, but actioning that and really effectively being able to use it is not, you know, it's just not very likely. So therefore, the risk of somebody taking those credentials and using them is there, but it's relatively low. Where we've seen the growth in the actual takeover and the actual fraud of e-commerce accounts is by accounts that have been compromised by malware. So the difference is you've got somebody who's using a computer or a mobile device. That device got infected by malware, by a virus. Now, all the information from that device is stolen and sent back to the bad guy who's running the malware. So the bad guy can actually log into someone's account knowing that that is absolutely a valid credential and get in. They don't have to try 100 million credential pairs and see which of them are going to work. They know exactly what accounts the victim has and how to log in. What the exact username and password is for that specific e-commerce site or that specific financial institution. Exactly. They also know what the person has been doing. So they know the account activity, they can see the history of transactions, and they can attempt to commit transactions that look similar to the pattern of this user. And they actually have tools that do that for them. 
so they can mine all that data using you know technology that legitimate companies are using today. So that's a very important distinction between you know kind of cred stuffing, which comes from big hacks of other companies, to malware attacks. The other thing about malware that people need to understand is malware today has evolved in two ways. One, some malware families are able to take control of the victim's computer. So not only do I have your account credentials, I can actually direct your computer or mobile device to log into your account and buy whatever I want. So it's very difficult for an anti-fraud tool to figure out that something is wrong because the victim or what seems to be the victim is logging in from his or her own device, doing the things that they usually do. So why flag that is something unusual. That's number one. Number two, even if they're not able to do that, the malware collects what's called a device footprint or fingerprint, excuse me, which is basically like, think of it as like really the technical fingerprints of a machine, which looks at a lot of different attributes, anything from the language your browser is using to the type of browser you have, the size of your screen, the resolution. It takes all of that and creates this kind of unique fingerprint. Now, malware now takes that. And so when the bad guy is logging into your account, even if he's using his own computer or some automated tool to do that, they load your device fingerprint. And so again, for the merchant, the login is coming from a device that looks exactly like it belongs to the legitimate account holder. So malware has just become a lot more advanced in that it is not only able to steal the information from the victim, but give the bad guys the ability to use it in a way that seems like the account holder himself or herself is doing the activity. So when we're talking about account takeover, from our perspective, the successful account takeovers, the majority of them coming from these kinds of malware attacks that make it easier to bypass fraud controls, not from credential stuffing and other types of attacks where you just have the person's credentials. And that was something that I just thought was so important for so many companies to understand, because I think that, you know, until there's enough of a problem or until someone, you know, like you that has that information comes forward, we're still operating on, you know, previous Intel, right? And so a lot of people are like, wait, we have a lot of controls that we put in place in the last few years to detect credential stuffing. Now we're seeing this crazy, you know, logins and we don't understand because a lot of companies, especially enterprise level, you know, or even medium up to enterprise level have detection systems to determine device fingerprint. And knowing now that criminals can now know, you know, everything from the operating system to the browser, to the resolution, to the screen size and the actual device information that the regular victim or the, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the regular consumer uses on their account and they have the username and password it's super dangerous. And aside from behavior biometrics, which is still fairly new, but there are some, you know, really good successes there, but, you know, they're expensive and still being, you know, it's, it can be challenging for merchants to change their entire system. And that implementation can be costly and, and long. It's really challenging. I recently had a very sneaking suspicion for good reason that a large online company had, probably a fair amount of accounts out there that were available. And some of the reasons were, you know, A, I've been talking to the merchant recently. B, I, you know, know that they have been a target for the last year, especially, but even before that. And also because when looking at marketplace advertisements, you know, it can be easy to find things that are for sale. It's much harder to know what is for sale and all of that, you know, but you can look that up on Telegram or any of these other apps. 
I noticed that their accounts are very, very cheap and the buy for you fraud and fraud as a service has been very cheap for them as well. So I said, Hey, you know, I'm talking to this merchant already. Like, can you guys see it, what you can find on your end? And just a quick search on your end in your database found 36,000 compromised accounts with username and password from the malware. And I think it's really important to also understand like how, just how prevalent this malware is. I think yeah. not being a cyber, you know, I'm not a cybersecurity expert. I'm not super technical, not being that. I think I kind of assume, oh, malware, like, you know, it's whatever. It's not super common. Maybe other people do because I'm so focused on the tactics and, and all of that. But it's pretty insane how much malware is around. And I think the first question everyone has is, well, how does it end up on someone's device? Is it more common to happen on a phone or a laptop? You know, which kind of device, you know, is it typically through phishing emails, social media ads, all the above? Do you have any insight in that? Or are you guys primarily just harvesting the data that comes back from the malware? You know, it's all of the above. The tools and tactics to infect people with malware, you know, ironically have not changed much in the last mm-hmm. few years. People are still clicking on emails and links that they shouldn't click on. People are still clicking on ads or going to websites that they shouldn't be going to. So the vast majority of malware infections that we see, believe it or not, are using exactly the same tactics they used five years ago. Phishing, social engineering, advertisements that are designed to draw people in. So that's really the vast majority. You've got more sophisticated methods that are used, for example, email hijacking. So, mm. and by the way, everything- I was hoping you were going to talk email, about this. <laughs> you know, it, it, it sounds manual, but this is all odd. There's like the bad guys have built technology to do all this at scale automatically. So keep that in mind as you think about the scale of this. So email hijacking goes as follows. Let's say we're going to use you as an example, Therese. Let's say- um, <laughs> Gosh, I hope not. You, I hope it's just, you know, yeah, um, yeah anecdotal and not- Yeah, let's say you got compromised by malware. Well, the malware now is smart enough to go into your email inbox and not only email everybody on your contact list, that's, you know, that's old news, but do something more sophisticated, email hijacking, where they actually, it inserts itself into conversations. You have email conversations. So you have an email exchange with a friend or a colleague or a client, and the malware will respond to that exchange with something new saying, hey, open this document or click on this link. And the reason they're doing that is because the data will show you that the likelihood of people clicking on a link or on a document, an attachment that comes from an existing conversation with somebody they know is way higher than anything else. And so, you know, there are tools and tactics that, you know, have been refined over the last couple of years, but generally speaking, a lot of them are relatively well-known, proven tactics. Phones you know, despite popular opinion, we Q6 believe, and we have the data to prove it, so it's not a hypothesis, we actually believe that mobile malware is more hype than anything else. It's very difficult to infect someone's device in a persistent manner. A lot of malware is just not successful. We've seen many organized and very advanced cyber criminal gangs who have run very successful computer malware campaigns fail at doing the same on mobile. You know, that's a whole other conversation. It's very technical, but mobile malware does not seem to be as effective. We work with a lot of financial institutions and we've actually shown them using data that virtually none of the losses they've seen or the takeovers have to do with mobile malware. But putting that aside, you know, any, any type of device can get infected. And, you know, we're also thinking about this right now in the context of, you know, individual consumers. Think about this in the context of small businesses or yeah. 
you know, even mom and pop businesses who also transact online and the volume and the dollar value transactions that they make on a regular basis are way larger than any one individual might do. Those are also getting targeted. Right. So you're not just talking about individual customers. You're talking about businesses, mom and pop and small size companies. And that's where you have real issues. You know, we've also seen, you know, if an e-commerce platform is a platform where they have buyers and sellers, you see seller accounts getting compromised and people taking those over. Yeah. Fraud in those accounts. We've also seen cases where merchants believe they look at fraud cases and they say, well, this is friendly or first party fraud. Mm. It's not. It's account takeover. From their data, there's nothing suggesting that somebody else executed a transaction. But again, you know, if you've got access to someone's machine using malware, you can do something that looks exactly like, you know, the, the actual account holder did it. So it might look to you as first party or friendly fraud, but it's not. I hadn't put that together. <laughs> I was uh, talking to a very large marketplace on one of my retailer calls a couple of weeks ago, and they shared with the group that, you know, they just did an analysis and 80% of their fraud coded chargebacks, those codes are chosen by the credit card company, not the merchant. So based on, you know, whatever they, and it's the easiest chargeback to file. So, you know, often it's full of, you know, first party fraud or friendly fraud. But after doing analysis, they said that they feel like 80% of their fraud coded chargebacks are friendly fraud or first party. So I'm going to make sure I know that they listen to this and make sure that they pay attention to that. You know, one other thing that we've discovered, and I don't want to take up a ton more of your time, but one other thing, well, you discovered first, I learned from you and let's give credit where credit's due here that they're also, you know, really taking their time and watching email inboxes and who do these people, you know, work with, or who do they get emails from? Who do they make purchases with? And then sometimes if they're using the same credentials as the victim, they will ensure that the emails from that merchant just suddenly go away and are no longer in their inbox. So if there's purchase confirmations, for example, Mm -hmm. or password resets that the victim isn't seeing it. And, you know, other things that, you know, I've learned from you too, is that there's just so much data from this malware that a lot of times they'll package it and sell it as Mm -hmm. bulk accounts for a specific merchant. So the people who are harvesting the data aren't always monetizing it in the way that we would think they're passing it on because there's just so much data. What tips, I mean, I'm sure that people in your life ask you the same questions that they ask me as far as, well, how do I stay safe? Or, you know, how do I not become victim to the malware? What do you recommend for people? I mean, obviously password managers, but I mean, are those helping when there's malware? Like what you know, what helps (laughs) inoculate this in a way from a consumer perspective, as well as, I mean, obviously merchant perspective, we've been talking about through this whole episode, but. From a consumer perspective, I think the first thing, and people have been saying it for years, but it's true. It it is awareness. So, you know, I take people, you know, I'll use my family as an example, you know, people that, you know, understand now a lot more about kind of the business of fraud because of what we do, they've become much more self-aware. And, you know, they will call me or tell me about schemes or or scams that, you know, they were able to tell. I think about, you know, these family members, they're not sophisticated, you know, cyber or anti-fraud professionals, but just much more aware. So a lot of this is common sense for individuals. You know, there are things that people could do. You mentioned password managers. Those are actually great tools. I I encourage everybody to have those. You know, I always tell people when they ask me, you know, think about having multiple devices and certain accounts that you care more about, you know, use one dedicated mm-hmm. device to do that. 
That means that even if another device where you're doing kind of everything else gets compromised, if somebody is able to access that, they may not be able to then gain access to your brokerage account or your bank account or your e-commerce, you know, the, the biggest merchants that you shop at. So those are, you know, good kind of personal hygiene tips that people can implement. You know, it's not expensive to have, you know, a couple of devices or using repurpose an old device that you don't use anymore just yeah. for, you know, uh, a few specific platforms or, or merchants that, that you use on a regular basis. So those are some things that people can do to keep themselves a little bit safer. In terms of, you know, what organizations or merchants can do, you know, it really is a long list, but really the way, you know, the way we think about it, you got to get your arms around what's happening, where, you know, where do you see fraud? Where are you able to detect fraud quickly and effectively? Where are you not? So understanding what's happening internally, I think is a number one priority. Understanding what tools you don't have today and you should implement or you have, but they're really not tweaked. They're not optimized. We go into you know, to work with merchants and other clients where they have amazing tools. And then as we kind of talk about what Mm -hmm. they're doing, we realize they're actually utilizing 12% of the functionality and the features of those tools. I don't blame them. You know, it's not easy sometimes. These tools are sophisticated, they're complicated, but really understand what you have, what those capabilities are, and have a plan to optimize usage. You know, that to me is critical. And then the last piece, and, you know, obviously I'm a little bit biased, but intelligence, understand mm-hmm. what's going on around you, not just inside your company, but understand what are the latest trends? What are these bad guys doing? If it is happening and I haven't seen it, it's probably happening and I just don't have a good way of detecting it. So be much more proactive about understanding the latest scams and, and the methods, because if you don't have that, you said it's a can of it's, there's always something new. If you don't have awareness of what's going on, you may have fixed yesterday's problem, but today's and tomorrow's problems are going to hit you in the face very quickly. I think having that understanding and that awareness is critical. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's why I've pretty much devoted uh, my life and career to education Mm -hmm. and collaboration with merchants, but also, you know, education in a way that it spans so many things, right? Like knowing what your competitors are seeing. Fraud is the only area within an e-commerce company that should never be competitive Mm -hmm. because you're not fighting versus each other. You're, you know, really fighting against the criminals. And mm-hmm. when they figure out how to, you know, have, when one company figures out how to defeat the bad guys, they just go across the street to the other guys. So, so important. And I couldn't agree more. And I really would urge anyone to also look at your guys' blog and resources. The reshipping paper, I'm obviously proud of and think we collaboratively did a great job on it. But you guys have a lot of really good insight on there. And also, you know, really breaking up the general education and information. You guys, you know, are pretty free flowing with that. And I really appreciate that. Uh, and then obviously, you know, for your clients, you're providing the very specific information that can help them identify things before they happen. So Ellie, I really appreciate your time. I know that you're super busy and just really appreciate you sharing all this with me and our listeners and really have enjoyed working with you and your team. Likewise. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun, great conversation, great questions, and I hope we get a chance to do it again sometime. That'd be awesome. I'm sure there'll be yet another... <laughs> invention in the mousetrap or I guess we're the mousetrap, but the cats are going to, you know, figure it out. So yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you 
again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.